as we come close to ending our series through the book of Jonah, we want to think about what we have seen so far in preparation for looking at our text today. You will remember, if you were here, the story began with God calling his prophet Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, one of Israel's enemies, to tell them that their evil has been noticed by God and that his judgment is coming. But rather than embrace that assignment, Jonah ran. He ran in the opposite direction, trying to go as far away from Nineveh as he possibly could, even going so far as to purchase passage on a ship uh, to take him out to sea. Nevertheless, God was not yet finished with his prophet, and he sent a great storm to batter the ship, scaring even these hardened sailors who knew this is no ordinary storm. This is divine in nature. Nevertheless, Jonah still wouldn't yield. So desperate was he to flee God's presence that he allowed himself to be thrown overboard, wanting to die rather than obey. And yet as death began to close in, Jonah had a change of mind. And he called out to the Lord to save him, to spare him from drowning in the sea. And God did just that. He sent a a great fish to swallow up Jonah and to rescue him from drowning in the sea. And from the belly of that fish, Jonah prayed, thankful that God had saved him. And after three days, he was literally hurled up onto the beach, receiving the same call as he had before. Go to Nineveh, call out against their sin, tell them that judgment is coming. This time he obeyed and began a long hundreds of mile trek to Nineveh from the coast and began preaching in the streets. And this is where we pick up the story this morning. We're going to back up and begin reading In chapter 3, verse 3. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, uh, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God." Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may return and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Then God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, and God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting in disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the saddle till he should see what should become of the city. May God bless the reading of his word. As we begin the book of Jonah, 
Um, if we know anything about the rest of the Bible, it is clear that his response to the calling of God is confusing to us at best. There's, there's virtually nothing like it in the rest of the Old Testament. No prophet ever said, no, forget it, I'm not, not going to go that way. I'm not going to disobey. Some, some hedged and said, why me, God? Aren't there people better than that? You know, Moses said, I, I stammer, I stutter. And God said, didn't I make your tongue? Jeremiah said, I'm too young. And he said, I formed you in the womb. Before you were even conceived, I had set you apart to do this task. Ezekiel said, I'm meant to be a priest, not a prophet. And by the Spirit, God grabbed him by the hair of his head and brought him close and said, you will be my man for Israel. And in in every case, they they said, okay, we will go. Jonah's already received a calling for a prophet. He's already had a ministry. And God says, go to Nineveh. And he says, forget it. And he runs. And he runs. And that response has not really made sense to us. What is the psychology of it? Why did he do it? We could guess. But it's not until this chapter that we are told, no less than by Jonah himself, why he refused the call. He did not want to go to Nineveh, for he feared they would be saved. He feared they would be saved. Why did he fear that? Why was that something that was so so horrendous a thought to Jonah that he refused his call from God? Well, what we're going to see this morning is that it came down to this. Jonah was an idolater. Jonah was an idolater. That is, Jonah was cherishing, loving, and serving something more than God. And we will unpack in a few minutes the specifics of his idolatry, but just in terms of laying a foundation, we first need to understand what is idolatry. Very often we're tempted to think of it in terms of, you know, some, some physical idol somewhere that we bring an offering to, we bow down and worship. And, and certainly that is part of idolatry, the worship of a false god in that literal sense. When I was in college, there was a, a Hindu temple just uh, about a 20-minute drive away. and You can literally go to this thing and see inside multiple physical images that they would, that they would pray to and that they would worship. And we saw... Over the last two years, we did our sweeping overview of the whole Bible. That idolatry, that kind, uh, was one of the persistent sins, uh, not just in Israel, but in the surrounding nations, and God had no time for it. He denounced it over and over and over again. But idolatry is bigger than that. It's broader than that. It is deeper than that. More importantly, the question that must be asked is this, can God's people be idolaters? And the answer that the Bible gives, sadly enough, is yes. Yes, they can, and thus they are warned against it. So, for example, in the Ten Commandments, the first two commands explicitly forbid idolatry. Not just physical idols, but idols of the heart. Again, all of the prophets, there is a message, flee idolatry. We get to the New Testament. You remember the rich young ruler? He comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? And what does Jesus say? He says, have you, have you kept the commandments? And he says, I've kept all of them since birth. He says, great, then sell all you have and come follow me. And the author of the gospel says he went away very sad because he was a very wealthy man. What did Jesus do? He went right to the heart of the man's issue, idolatry. He loved his money more than he loved his God. Paul describes a litany of common sins, exhorting Christians, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, Colossians 3. All of these common sins spring from what? An idolatrous heart. 
And so it should be no surprise, one of the last books of the Bible, 1 John, ends with this command, little children, Christians, believers, keep yourself from idols. So yes, God's people can succumb to idolatry, but we've still not defined it. We've still not said what idolatry is, what is an idol. Well, we're going to hear from him several times in this sermon. Pastor Tim Keller from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City he has written much on idolatry and is a reliable guide for us. Here's what he says, quote, What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God, an idol, is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotion and financial resources on it without a second thought. Now viewed in that light, there is a sense in which all of our sins, mark this, all of our sins spring from idolatry. We fail to believe God is what we need and so we disobey Him and go after things which we think we do need. We fail to see that the one true God is enough, enough, and turn away from the little gods of our own making. And that's the root of Jonah's problem in this text, as we will see. He believed God, he loved God, he served God, but his idols were more important to him than God. And this isn't just Jonah's problem. It's our problem, too. We've said from the beginning we shouldn't just look at Jonah as a, as a bad example, as someone to be laughed at and pitied. We are like Jonah. We're just like Him in every way if we have the eyes to see it. We're no better from Him, though our sins may look different. And so the question is, what do we do with our idolatry? What do we do with our idols? Well, that's what we want to see this morning by the negative example of Jonah. Jonah shows us what not to do. And so what we want to do is see what he did and then flip it and do the opposite. He held on to his idols. He loved his idols. He, he defended them. Uh, he did not want to get rid of them. And we want to do the complete opposite of that. We want to be able to rid our life of our idols so that we can give worship to the one true God as we should and as he deserves. So three things that we should do by way of negative example of Jonah. First of all, we should expose our idols instead of hiding them. We should expose our idols instead of hiding them. From the beginning, Jonah has been running from God and his call, and again, here we see why. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he feared their salvation. He knew the character of God. He knew that God was gracious and merciful and compassionate towards sinners. And Jonah didn't want the Ninevites receiving that kind of grace. He didn't want them to receive that kind of salvation. Why? Because Jonah's idolatry was rooted in his identity as a Hebrew prophet. Tullian Tavidian says idolatry is building our identity around something other than God. And that is exactly what Jonah had done. How do we know that? 
Well, first of all, let's pull back and let's think about who Jonah was before we get to who he is in this book. I'm sure some of you have, have read it every day. Uh, it's just your favorite pra- uh, passage, 2 Kings 14, right? I'm sure all of you just can you start quoting it if I ask you to, but I won't. I'll just, let me just summarize for you. Uh, Israel finds itself being led by a wicked king. It is largely at this point a wicked nation surrounded by wicked peoples threatening to destroy them. And yet God speaks through Jonah to assure them they would not be destroyed. That in fact he would allow this wicked king uh, blessing and undeserved grace that they might actually expand their borders back out and have a sure defense against their enemies. Now think about what that might be like today. Today we find ourselves in a situation where the economy continues to struggle. Al-Qaeda has said that it will avenge the death of bin Laden. And even as seen in recent weeks, the government is run by wicked men in this country. Now imagine God speaks to one of you and says, Tell the people of the United States that I will spare them. That I will restore their economy. That I will, I will protect them from their enemies. That I will put righteous men to govern over them. And, and you get on national television, you make this announcement, and it happens. What would it be like for you? You'd be a national hero. I mean, people would have your face on a t-shirt. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there'd be a blog site saying, oh, how great is he? Look at this, you know, the Savior, blah, 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 blah. And that's how it was for Jonah. He came in and gave this message, and people were like, Jonah, you're the best. Thank you. All we've been hearing from Hosea and Amos is, you're wicked, you're wicked, you're sinful. Flee from sin. And you're like, hey, God still loves us. Jonah, you come to the party. Uh, You come and and preach some more. That's the kind of message we want to hear. And what we see is that Jonah took this, this good thing, this message of hope, and yet in his heart it became twisted so that this message of hope for the covenant people of God, his role as a prophet, became together in his heart the idols that he worshiped, the things that he loved more than God himself. So what do we see when we get to the book? Well, he's called to go preach, not just about Israel's enemies. He is called to go to preach to them, and he runs. Why? Because he's afraid Israel's enemies might get saved, that they might actually be forgiven and not get the judgment he thinks they deserve. He's on the boat in the storm. The sailors say, hey, who are you? What do you do? What God do you serve? What's the first thing he says in chapter, in chapter 1? I am a Hebrew. I am a Hebrew. He doesn't say, first, I'm a prophet of Yahweh. He doesn't say, I I love and worship and serve Yahweh, the God of Israel. No, the first thing he says is, I am a Hebrew. He then tells the people, throw him over the side. And when God saves him from drowning, he prays from the belly of the fish. And at first glance, if you're not careful, he looks repentant. But he's not. You go back and you read the prayer of chapter 2 and what you will see is he is thankful he has been saved from from drowning in the sea. He is thankful for the fish, but he never confesses his sin. He never repents of his rebellion and running. In fact, what are the last two verses? Do you remember what, what they are? Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I... What the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay for salvation belongs to the Lord. Now what was the last thing that Jonah just saw on the boat before he went in the drink? It was these pagan sailors desperately calling out to their false gods, their idols, that they might come and calm the storm and save their lives. That was the last thing. He didn't see the pagan sailors 
after the calm ceased, reject their idols and turn to the living God. That's, he didn't see that. All he knew was, I'm better than those punks on the boat. I, I'm not some pagan idol worshiper. I know the one true God. I'm of the covenant people. Salvation comes from Yahweh, not from the Baals. It's pride in Jonah and the revelation of his idolatry that we see. Even when he actually comes to obey his command, he goes to Nineveh. What does he say? There's no mention of the grace and the mercy and the compassionate, steadfast love that he's already said. He knows is part of God's character. All it is is this. You are evil and God's going to judge you. You are evil and God's going to judge you. Why is that his message? Because he doesn't want them to be spared. He doesn't want to give them hope. He doesn't want to give them some assurance that they just turn. God will relent and save them. He hates them. They are Israel's enemy. They are God's enemy. They are His enemy. There is no compassion. There is no forgiveness. There is no quarter. I am a Hebrew and a Hebrew prophet. Therefore, my job is to condemn the nations regardless of what God tells him to do. So here is the picture that emerges of Jonah. Jonah is a man who has experienced God's grace and salvation. He has experienced calling to ministry, yet he has become more concerned with the expressions of God's grace, his ethnicity and prophetic role, than he is God himself. His idolatry is to twist his priorities and so refuse to heed God's mission and wants Israel's enemies to experience God's wrath, not God's grace. Now, it's not hard to think about and conceive of that as happening in real life, is it? Shamefully, we can think of Christians 50, 60, 70 years ago, Southern Baptist Christians, who refused to go to the other side of the city and preach the gospel for fear that people with a different color skin might get saved. What was their thinking? We don't want them in our churches. We don't want to be around them. They are inferior to us. Therefore, we refuse the clear command of God to go and preach the gospel to them. Jonah's no better. Jonah's no better. In fact, he's worse. He's not just given a general command, go to the nations. He is told specifically, you go to this people that you hate and you tell them judgment is coming unless something gives. And he says, no, I hate them. I am not an Ninevite. I'm not an Assyrian. I have no love for them. I am a Hebrew. I don't want them to be saved. They don't deserve to be saved. All the while, though, what is God doing? Moving to save pagans. He does it on the boat when he tries to run, and he, does, he saves an entire city, though Jonah doesn't like it. He's, trying to not just exp he's not just trying to bring uh, a hint, a foreshadowing of what's going to happen when Christ comes and the gospel explodes among all nations. He's trying to, to, to show the sin and the idolatry of all of Israel as characterized through its prophet Jonah, which is this, though we are wicked and sinful, we still think we're better than everybody else. He's trying to show Jonah his idolatry. And so Israel, his idolatry, and guess what? He doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. He's not looking to expose the idols of his heart. He wants to hide them from the penetrating gaze of God. So what about us? What about us? Have you allowed God to expose your idols recently? 
or have you stubbornly refused to see them? Fathers, it's our day. Let's, let's think about ourselves for a minute. What are our idols? What are the things that we treasure the most? Where are the things in which we find our identity? I can tell you where the temptations are. To find our identity in our job, to find it in our kids, in our gadgets, in our gizmos, in our cars, maybe even the very ministry that God has given to us, to find our identity wrapped up in that rather than God Himself. What, what is it in your life? that you think you just can't live without. This is what defines me. This is who I am. If I lose this, I'm nothing. The Bible says there's only one right answer to that. Only one right answer to that, and that is this. Our self-worth, our identity is found in God who has saved us in Jesus Christ. Full stop. Nothing else. If I don't have a job, if I don't have a family, we'll just press a little harder on men. If I don't have a sex life, that means nothing because I'm loved and accepted by God in Christ. That's where our identity is. That's where our self-worth is. Read Ephesians 1 this afternoon. This is the basis for your self-worth and identity. God has blessed us by choosing to save us and to make us holy. He has loved us and adopted us as His own. He has redeemed us from sin and has revealed His will to us all according to the riches of His grace, Paul says. He has promised us an eternal inheritance and He has guaranteed that we will receive that by sending His Spirit into our hearts and sealing us until the day of redemption. All all through hearing the gospel and believing. That's it. That is it. And, and, and if we don't see that, if we don't see that, that in Christ God has provided for our every need then, and believe it, then we'll be idolaters. We will seeking to be trying to fill a void in our life with something else. We will think, I need that, and we will commit sin to get it when God says, you don't need that. You just need me. You just need me. We should expose our idols, but more than that, we should attack our idols. Secondly, we should attack our idols instead of defending them. After God brings repentance to the whole city, we as Christian readers are ecstatic. We're like, hallelujah, praise the Lord and pass the offering plate, right? I mean, that's what we're thinking. This is, this is great. This is amazing. But Jonah's not happy. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Jonah should have felt a spiritual whack against the idols of his heart. And instead, instead, he simply defended his idolatry. God was pressing in. He was attacking him. He was saying, Jonah, can't you see? Can't you see? This is rotten for your soul. This is no good for you. And Jonah said, no, 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 no. This is mine. This is good. This is what I love. This is why he gets angry. Because God chooses to save pagans. After all, he was an Israelite. He was a member of the covenant people of God. He received the law. He was part of the people that experienced the, the exodus from Egypt to be the chosen people. Those Ninevites were just pagans, plain and simple. They warred against Israel. They worshipped false gods. They didn't deserve salvation. That was Jonah's thinking. And that's why he got angry. Because God thought differently than him. Because God thought differently than him. But Jonah moved on in his experience from anger to despair. What does he say? In verse 3, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. What? I mean, just think about it. What an amazing thing to say to God. God, look at the life you've given me. Look at the situation you've put me in. It's so miserable. Just kill me. 
I don't want to live like this. What? Now, some people have tried to go easy on, on Jonah here. They say, well, he's no better than Elijah. Remember, he got depressed and asked God to kill him. Well, that's true. Elijah did do that, but the circumstances were totally different. Do you remember the circumstances? Again, another passage I'm sure you just love. 1 Kings 18 and 19, right? When I mean, you guys just know this, right? Okay, maybe not. I'll, I'll, I'll remind you. Uh, Elijah goes to King Ahab, the wicked king of Israel that time, and he says, you are a wicked king. He says, you are messing up God's people Israel because you are leading them to worship Baal. And your wife is leading, leading Israel to worship all kinds of other false gods. You guys are wicked and wrong, and you deserve to be killed under God's judgment. Yahweh is the one true God, not the Baals. And of course, Ahab is like, what in the world? Nobody's talked like this to me before. And so they basically they have a contest. They have a God-off. And they say, okay, we're going to build this altar. And guess what? You call out the Baal, you have him show up and burn up the altar. Then we'll call it to Yahweh, and we'll see, we'll see who does it better. Guess what? Baal doesn't show up. Doesn't show up. I mean, they're out there yelling and screaming for hours. They're cutting themselves. I mean, they're, 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 they're sweaty and hot and blood's flying everywhere. And Elijah's off in the distance saying, hey, yell louder. Maybe Baal's asleep. You know, give, give him some time. Maybe he's in the bathroom and he needs to finish up. I mean, this is what Elijah is saying to these guys. And, and finally, he's like, enough, enough, enough. And he says, douse the thing with water. Let there be no doubt. And boom, fire from heaven comes down, consumes the altar. The false prophets of Baal are, are killed. And Jonah's like, now you, or, uh, Elijah's like, choose this day who you're going to serve. This non-existent false god or Yahweh the Lord. And he walks off. Well, can you imagine? I mean, even without Twitter and Facebook, I imagine news got around pretty fast. Okay. In fact, Ahab comes and it's just, I mean, you can imagine the blood just drained from his face and he walks in and his wife Jezebel says, what's, what's the matter with you? And he says, dude, this prophet Elijah, he came and we had this contest and, and Baal didn't show up and she gets furious. I mean, she gets irate and she sends a message. She says, you, you make it known to Elijah this. May God, your God, burn me up and hack me to pieces just like that offering and those false, God, those false prophets if I don't take your life before the end of the next day. Now, what are you going to do if you're Elijah? You've just had this huge experience. I mean, before this, you said, God, don't let it rain. Get their attention. It didn't rain for years. And then he says, God, let's, let's have it rain again. And it rains. He says, God, consume the fire. God does it in spectacularly. I mean, you and God are in. This queen who wants to kill you. So what? So what? But that's not what Jonah thought. He turns tail and he runs and he is scared for his life. And he gets to the wilderness and he says, I can't believe this. I can't believe how sinful I am. I am no better than anyone else in Israel. I'm no better than my fathers. I'm a punk sinner just like them. I don't even trust God. Here I am, the very last of the prophets, and I'm a weakling. He said, God, I don't want to live like this. I don't want to disgrace your name. Just, just take my life. And God has to come in and say, Elijah, Elijah, you sinned, but I still love you. And there's 7,000 more prophets out there. Take heart, my friend. Fulfill your ministry. Don't fear that woman Jezebel. Now that's much different than Jonah. Elijah is so broken over his sin, he says he cannot understand how he could go on with God's love and affection still. Jonah says, I'm tired of God, and therefore I want to die. 
The world as God has made it, the position He has put me in, is so despicable to me, so miserable to me, I can't stand that God is so much of a goody two-shoes as to save our enemies. Just kill me now. Just kill me now. Calvin is surely right in his commentary about when he says about this, quote, this is monstrous. This is monstrous. What else can you say about Jonah's reaction? He is angry with God because he saved sinners and he tries to argue with God that he's justified in his anger. It's crazy. But friends, this is exactly how we act when someone confronts our idols. We act the same way. We will do just about anything, say just about anything to protect our idols. Just this week, I read about a 17-year-old Chinese man, Zhao Zheng, is I think how you say his name. He coveted an iPad 2. He thought to himself, if I just get an iPad 2, I'll have a great life. If I can just get an iPad 2, things will be great for me. I'll be popular. I'll be able to do all kinds of cool multimedia things. I'll be, I'll be in with society. So much did he covet after this iPad 2. You know what he did? You know how he got the money to buy it? He sold one of his kidneys. Sold one of his kidneys. That is the kind of insane, unrealistic thinking that issues from people who love their idols. I mean, can you imagine if this guy told his friends, hey, I'm going to get an iPad too. Really? Jang, how are you going to get the money? I'm going to sell a kidney. Well, what would they have done? They'd have probably slapped him around and said, are you stupid? You'll sell a kidney? Are you insane? But he couldn't see it because his idol had such a grip on his heart. Can you imagine now? And I'm going to make the case that, that Jonah finally did repent. I'll make that case next week. Maybe the week after. and We'll see. But, but can you imagine if he really did repent and he looks back now? Can you imagine what, he's, what he thinks of himself? Oh, I was an idiot. I was stupid. I got angry at God for saving people. And yet in the moment when we're, when we're cleaving to protecting our idols, we can't, see the, we can't see the world clearly. We can't see life as it's meant to be lived. We cannot see the sheer insanity of our sin as we run from God and all that He offers in favor of the puny, lifeless, impotent gods that we think will give us pleasure and make our lives better. Tim Keller is right when he says, when an idol gets a grip on your heart, it spins out a whole set of false definitions of success and failure and happiness and sadness. It redefines reality in terms of itself. So again, we ask the question, what's defining your reality today? Who or what is setting the agenda for what is right, what is wrong, what is success, what is failure? What are you willing to do who are you willing to manipulate and scheme against in order to preserve your idols? What is the one thing that causes you to get mad and indignant and despair at the thought that you might lose it? Friend, that's your idol. That's your idol if it's anything other than God. Loved ones, don't be like Jonah. Don't be like him. Don't run your life into the ground trying to defend and hold on to something that's never going to bring you what you want. You'll just be like Bono, forever singing, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. The reality is only Jesus is going to fill that void. 
Only He, the one true God, is going to be exactly what you're looking for if you have the eyes to see it. Very quickly, the last thing. We should expose our idols, we should attack our idols, and we should smash our idols instead of cherishing them. We should smash our idols instead of cherishing them. Jonah was cherishing his idol. He defended it. He grew angry and despaired when it was shown to be unreal by God. He continued to hold on to his idols rather than see them what they were really for. After all that he's been through, all of the patience God has shown him, the grace He has shown him, God does the unthinkable. He shows more mercy to Jonah. I mean, Jonah has just, he's just done what, is, what is, should be the unthinkable. And look at God's response in verse 4. Do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? I mean, that's not what I would have said if I was God. I mean, I'd be like, hey, you remember Elijah, your teacher, Mount Carmel? Guess what? Showtime, bud. <laughs> you don't talk to me like that. And yet he is kind and he is merciful to Jonah. His response is more mute. It's not even like Job. Remember Job? He shows up in the thunderstorm. And he's like, who do you think you are talking to me like this? Where were you when you laid the foundations of the world? Do you think you're wiser than me? He's not even like that. He demonstrates an amazing patience with his prophet. And frankly, you should be thankful for that because that's how he deals with us. And we think about the reality of our life. We profess love for God. We profess all kinds of commitment to Jesus Christ. But what do we do? We still live with idols. Can you imagine standing here on a Sunday, singing in Christ alone, my hope is found, and then booming from heaven, you hear this voice? If your hope is found in Christ alone, why do you hoard so much money in the bank? If your hope is found in Christ alone, why do you care so much what other people think of you? I think half of us would probably, I mean, frankly, just wet ourselves and be on the floor if that happened. But to be honest, I think there would be some of us, and I say some of us because I'd like to think I wouldn't do it, but I don't know. And we would be mad at God for interrupting the worship service. That's, that, that's how much we, we crave and cling on to our idols. Jonah had no interest in identifying his idols. He only wanted to defend and protect them. In fact, he said, life is not worth living if I don't have my idols. Again, what about us? What do we cherish? What do we cherish that should be smashed to bits and ground to dust? The bigger question is, if we want to smash our idols, how do we do it? How do we actually get rid of an idol in our life, in our heart? One last time, Keller is helpful. Listen closely to what he says. Idols cannot be removed. They must be replaced. Idols cannot simply be removed. They must be replaced, he says. If you only try to uproot them, they grow back. But they can be supplanted. By what? By God Himself, of course. But by God, we do not mean a general belief in His existence. Most people have that, yet their souls are riddled with idols. What we need is a living encounter with God. Here's the thing. Jonah knew the right theology. He just didn't really believe it. I mean, I mean what, what does he say? I mean, can, can you imagine? He's saying the most, some of the most beautiful words ever given to man. Exodus 34, God directly to Moses about to see so much of God's goodness that his face is really going to glow for days and weeks on end, freak people out so they've got to put a covering over it. 
And Jonah, Jonah utters it like a swear word. He says, I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. You should know that. That's how God identified himself. He says, this is who I am. But he fails to really believe that. He fails to see that that kind of God is not just a God for Israel. That is a kind of God who is a God for the nations, for all the peoples of of the earth. His idolatry at its root, all idolatry, is a failure to see God for who He really is. It's a failure to see Him as sufficient for our lives. We think we need something else beside Him. We, we, so we trust and we worship that thing rather than God. And yet, it's only in God that you'll really find joy and satisfaction on the deepest level. It's only in really knowing who God is that we can be rid of our idols. So Tim Chester another pastor over in England, he says this, if we're going to get rid of our idols, we need to believe and really believe four things about God. Here they are. If we believe God is great, then we don't have to be in control. Boy, isn't that what we like? Control. I mean, whether it's our personal life or whether it's an area of responsibility, we like to be able to call the shots. And guess what? That's an idol because only God is really in control. And if we really believe He is great, then that frees us from that idol of control. We don't have to be in control. We trust and believe He is in control. If we believe God is great, we don't have to be in control. If we believe God is glorious, number two, then we don't have to fear others. I think this is the, probably the, the most vexing sin of, of Christians in this country. We fear other people more than God. We fear man. We fear their opinions. We fear their acceptance or their rejection. We worry, war, but we worry more about what people think than what God thinks. But what does Chester rightly say? If we believe God alone is glorious, that only His opinion really, really counts, then we don't have to fear others. Number three, if we believe God is good, we don't have to look elsewhere. If we believe God is good, we don't have to look elsewhere. When we fail to believe God is good, that's when we start looking for other things to fill our life up with. We think God's not enough. He's not good enough. But if we believe He is good, we don't have to look elsewhere. Finally, if we believe God is gracious, we don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to prove ourselves. Here's the thing. Most Christians today say we believe in salvation by grace alone, but we don't live that way. We, we, we don't live that way. We, again, think God is going to really love us. He's going to accept us if we keep doing all the religious things. We keep trying to prove ourselves to God and to other people. So we don't come and say, you know what? I am really struggling today. I need help. Can you pray with me? Can you talk with me? No, we just say, fine, thanks. I'm doing great. How are you? We feel like we've got to prove ourselves to God and to other people. But Chester is surely right. If we really believe God is glorious, then we won't have to prove ourselves. It is only in worshiping God for who He really is that we will be free from our idols. If you don't hear anything else, write that down. Put it in your Bible. Put it in your notebook. Put it in your whatever it is. It's only in worshiping God for who He really is that we will be free from our idols. Darcy Stike is a daughter of a, of a Lutheran minister. And in her recent memoir called Easter Everywhere, she describes how she forsook her Christian upbringing and rejected her profession of faith. She moved to New York City and entered a life of club hopping and sexual obsession. While she was there, she wrote several novels that did well on the market. And all of this, she had the appearance of an amazing, exciting life. Yet she writes in her memoir all the while she was restless and unfulfilled. In the middle of her book, she quotes from the Jewish philosopher Simon Veal as a, and says, what, what Veal says here is a summary of my life. 
This is what I believe at the moment. Here's what Veal wrote and what she quoted. One has only the choice between God and idolatry. If one denies God, one is worshiping some things of this world in the belief that one sees them only as such. But in fact, though unknown to oneself, imagining the attributes of divinity in them. That's a, this is someone who knows Christianity, rejected it, and yet comes back and says, everybody's worshiping something. Everybody. You may think you just enjoy relationships, but the reality is if you are obsessed with relationships, it's because you're worshiping that thing. And though you may want to reject God, what you see are all the attributes of God in those relationships. Everybody worships something. It's either going to be the one true God or it's going to be an idol. Loved ones, don't deceive yourselves. Don't continue in your service to idols. Look to God. Look to His greatness. Look to His glory and His goodness and His graciousness, all perfectly revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Find, first of all, the realization that your idolatry the penalty for it has already been nailed to the cross. Though you may worship idols, God does not hold that against you and say judgment is coming. No, judgment has already come in Christ. And because judgment has already come, now you can look to Jesus, the one true God, and you can love and worship and serve Him because He alone is the, is the soul-satisfying treasure that you will ever find in your life. If you truly see that and believe that and come to worship Him that way, then you will be able to grind your idols to the dust at your feet. Father, that's our prayer this morning. We would not continue like Jonah, seeking to cling to our idols, but that we would see the reality of who you are. We would trust you. We would believe you. We would find you so glorious, so beautiful and satisfying to our souls that our idols would seem tasteless and worthless to us. God, help us again to taste and see that you are good. That all you have given us we need, all that we need you have given us in Christ. We ask it in His name.